This is episode 20 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with physiotherapist Adrian Lowe about pain neuroscience education. All right, thank you for letting us interview you today. Can we start by having you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Adrian Lowe, and um, I'm physical therapist, educator, researcher, and um, I live in the United States, so from South Africa originally, and um, involved in the world of pain science. Can you tell us about your education? You did your PhD. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm trained as a physiotherapist, and I was trained in South Africa, went through my bachelor's, master's degree, and then, um, you know, as I was going through my training for that matter and my education, um, I encountered some really cool people like, and, and I met David Butler for that matter. And I taught with David for a long time, about 18 years and even with Mosley for a long time. And um, you know, throughout the whole process, I had so many more questions. So I decided to do my PhD um, with a slant on pain neuroscience. And so completed my PhD work in, oh, 2012 now? I think it was 2012, yeah, in pain neuroscience education. And what got you involved in neuroscience education? Easy answer, I failed. Um, you know, I was trained in the original manual therapy approach and, and I would be very careful here. I was trained in the Maitland approach, heavily by Jeff Maitland and um, nothing, no, nothing disrespectful. I mean, I think the world of Jeff Maitland and um, we were taught clinical reasoning, manual therapy, and it worked for a while. And then it sort of didn't, it didn't work anymore. The world, the world has changed, pain has changed. And um, the problem is the better you get, and ooh, that's a horrible statement because I don't think it was ever good, but the better I got, the more complex patients came my way. And you can read the same stuff from Gifford and Butler or whatever. And I just got to a point where I couldn't help people anymore. I was absolutely, the models I were following when, when working, if you really go back five years of clinical practice, I was completely burned out. And then um, I found this new paradigm of pain science. It just made so much sense of this stuff that I never understood. So uh, it's easy, I failed and, and I needed a new, new way. Can you define pain neuroscience education? Pain neuroscience education is easy. It's, it's explaining to a human being their pain experience, but from a biological and physiological perspective. We have done it so long from an anatomical perspective, but this is the biology, the physiology um, behind it, not negating the psychology. Um, I think that's one of the problems people think is just biology and physiology, but they interconnect. But um, it's simple. We just explain to you how pain works. I hope this makes sense, but for so long, people came to us with, say, back pain. And we spend all this time teaching them about their back, but nothing about their pain, which is what drove them there. And so, you know, with the driving force of Louis Gifford, David Butler, Laura Mosley, we figured out people are interested in pain. So I'm probably long-winded here, but so people understood more about their pain, not their back, more about their pain, not their knee. And that's the essence of it, but from a biological perspective. Can you give us a five-minute layman's <laughs> explanation to describe pain? We have done quite a bit of research and the story that keeps being highly ranked by patients and by clinicians is what we call the sensitive alarm system story. So we would say to the patient, so I'm gonna use you as a patient if that's okay with you today, you know, and I'll tell you, listen, um, you know, thank you for coming to therapy. We're so excited to be here. Three years ago, you hurt your back, right? You hurt your back, you went to saw the doctor, you saw the chiropractor, the physio, etc. Our body has a living, breathing alarm system that tells us what happens to us. So when you step in a rusted nail, do you wanna know about it, yes or no? Why? Because you need to know about it, yes. right? Otherwise, we get an infection. So we always ask little kids, even in school now, how do you know there's a nail in your foot? 
I mean, none of us have eyeballs at the bottom of our foot. So our body has a living, breathing alarm system called the nervous system. So our nervous system works like an alarm system. That's our metaphor. And the nervous system typically buzzes along at the bottom. Life is good. When we step in a nail, it ramps up the system and ding, 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 the alarm goes off and basically forces us to do something, right? So we pull the nail out, get a tetanus shot, we go pull a bandage around the foot, and we learn from the experience. Sharp, bad, right? We don't walk barefoot around nails. And what should happen is the minute you pull the nail out, our alarm system would beautifully calm down. Well, the same thing occurs when we hurt our back, when we hurt our knee, etc. So what we now know is if you hurt your back, the alarm system ramps up, same thing goes off, ding, 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 and says, go get some help. So we go see the physio, the chiropractor, the doctor, etc. And what should happen is when we get treatment, help, etc., the system should calm down and life goes on. We now know in about one in four people, the alarm system ramps up, go get some help, but doesn't calm all the way down. And you get stuck with an extra sensitive alarm system. So if you think of a threshold, before you had pain, there was so much room for you that you can go run, you know, a fun run. You can sit in a car for five hours driving to grandma's house. You can deal with stress at home. But since having pain, the alarm system has never calmed down. And now it takes, you know, five minutes in the car, the alarm goes off, ding, ding, ding. Um, a little bit of stress at home, ding, 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 the alarm goes off. So we talk about the idea that the alarm system becomes sensitized and it changes your life. Now, I will tell you in all the years I've told people this story in all our research, there's only three questions I ask us. How do you know this? You're a physio, right? You're not a, you're not a surgeon. Why did it not come down? And number three, the biggest one they ask us is how do you turn it down? As we teach a lot of people, if you can answer those three questions, game over. You're going to help a lot of people. So number one, how do we know it? You told me. This is the, what we call the used to could. This is what I could do and this is what I can do now. I can barely touch you. The physical palpation, the physical exams we as physios do. Why did it stay up there? All the yellow flags. This would be um, fear, worries about your job, worries about income, stresses at home, family life, etc. And then the biggest thing is how do we calm the system down? And then we give people a biological explanation for things like aerobic exercise, sleep hygiene, nutrition, relaxation, meditation, mindfulness, the list goes on and on and on. And so I don't know if that's five minutes, but I will tell you the story I just told you, maybe a little slower, easier, more explanation is probably the best story we have figured out in the last how many years we've done the research that people really get it and, and they understand. So I did hurt myself, but my system is sensitive. Now for me and you today and, and people listening, this is a metaphor for central sensitization for allodynia, a sensitive system which changes your life versus tissues that have been injured. Is that five minutes? No, it's probably two minutes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any other metaphors that you use to help people? Oh, we, we have 46 metaphors. So there's a lot of different metaphors, you know. So we use nerve sensors. When people say, you know, when it's cold out, I feel my arms. So we talk about sensors. When you go to the grocery store and you walk in the door, slide open, you walk in, there are sensors. Well, we have sensors that tell us how cold it is outside. We have sensors telling us we're stressed. So we tell the sensor story to explain to people how you can become sensitive to cold. Being from Africa, one of my favorites is a lion story. When a lion jumps the room, our system ramps up, but the lion never leaves because pain isn't in your life for 10 years, 20 years, so you become fatigued. So we can tell this in a chronic fatigue syndrome story. I mean, the stories go on and on. We have so many different stories. Um, one of the cool things is our residents, our students come up with more stories, so we build more of these stories. There's the brain meeting stories, the neuromatrix. We have um, so many different stories, yeah. How does the pain neuroscience education actually work to change someone's pain? Reduces threat. If you follow Mosley's definition of pain, which we like the definition, is that pain is a construct of the brain based on perception of threat. So 
for us, for too long, a person's pain has been tied to the health of their tissues. You know, basically, bad tissue, you hurt. Good tissue, you feel good. And we know that's not true. All of us should know that by now. But when we explain to people how pain works and at what they feel and what they experience, A, we can explain it. So, yes, we can explain it. It can get better. It is plastic. The plasticity part of it gives us hope. The fear goes down. You know, Gordon Waddell, um, I'd say the late Gordon Waddell in 1993, Pain Journal's famous quote, the fear of pain is worse than pain itself, is, 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 it has to stand forefront here. We have a plethora of research to show if we teach you about pain, your fear goes down. And fear drives pain. Now, it's other things. It's self-efficacy. It is empowerment. It's so many other cool things. But I truly, if it had to come down to one thing, I think it, it reduces fear. It takes a threat value away. You mean this can get better? Absolutely. You mean my, my back is okay? Your back is good. You won't make the Olympic squad, but you're good. You know, kind of that whole analogy of we used to scare the living daylights out of patients. You had the worst back I've ever seen. So, so it has shifted from the mechanical to the plasticity neurobiology and the fear goes down. I, I, I think that's one. I hope my, my neuroscience colleagues are not too hard on me in that. There's other ones too, but catastrophization, all those, but fear I think is a critical one that goes down. And what is the latest evidence to support this as a treatment intervention? That's a good question. There are four systematic reviews now on pain neuroscience education. The evidence is growing, first of all. Um, when the first one came out, and that was, um, you know, Cormac Ryan's team came out with it, it was only two studies. We came out with the second one in 2011, which there was, I think we had seven or eight studies, um, but it were lower level studies. And then Mosley did a review with Butler, and then we just published the latest one. There's now 13 randomized clinical trials. The evidence, the body of evidence is growing. And the evidence, the easy answer is if somebody comes to you in pain and you teach him about pain and they get it, as David Butler says, in the marrow of their bones, they go, I got it. Their pain goes down, their function improves, their fear goes down, all those cool things. And, and by the way, I think it's important also for you to understand that there's a big shift now towards numbers needed to treat. Numbers needed to treat tell us how effective a treatment is. And the NNT for pain neuroscience education right now for pain is three to one. So for every three people who walk in, one walks out better on a pain scale. Well, if you look at gabapentin and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, antidepressants, their NNT hovers around a six to seven out of to one ratio. And they have serious side effects. So, so if you balance the risk benefit, it has an enormous benefit. And the, what makes it even better, by the way, is if you add something else to it, the movement aspect. If you want to increase the, you know, the effect size, then we take pain neuroscience education, but we add movement to it. That combination is, the evidence is growing exponentially as we speak right now. What are some common pitfalls when explaining pain neuroscience to patients? I think the number one is always, oh, you think it's in my head, right? So the famous quote again, David Butler is, is known for saying, the art of explaining pain to a patient is to tell them it's in the head without telling them it's in the head. Um, because Rene Descartes left us with this dualism model. Oh, oh, you think it's in my head, which infers it's not real, it's fake, etc. Well, no brain, no pain, right? It has to go to the brain. I think the pitfall clinically, I think, is we, we do too much. You know, when I was trained 20 years ago, we said to the patient, say, oh, I know so much about pain, listen to this, and then boom, we give you everything, right? You take this drink from a fire hose. What we've done in the last five or 10 years is we've given people paced education, just like exercise. There's your little piece, chew on it, 
Think about it at home, come back. We'll give you another little piece, another little piece. And I think one of the problems we made in the early days is we blew people out of the water. You know, in two, three weeks, we have the American Physical Therapy Association conference again. And, you know, we're going to have rooms of thousands of students sitting there, and they're going to learn from us. They're going to go, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And then they're going to sit with the patient and going to blow them out of the water. They'll never come back. They get emotionally overrun. So I think the clinical pitfall is to do a little bit, let it simmer, let it settle. Or as we often say, you know, plant the little seeds, let it be, and then them come back again, etc. Pain is very personal for every person. So how do you explain, or how do you change your explanations to suit someone's needs? Easy. Do a thorough interview. Get to know the human being in front of you. We have really good research right now to show that group sessions are not as good as individual, and large auditorium full of people doesn't work. Uh, we've done it. We did a research project with hundreds of people in auditoriums. We jump on the stage, we tell them how pain works. They sit there and say, that was awesome, but didn't help them one bit. Because it's got to be personal, right? So in a real physio clinic, what we do is we interview, who are you? Tell me about your life. Then I take your circumstances and I make it personal to the stories. So we tie your story to the metaphors example, because that, that way, A, I show you, I listen to you. We build trust, all of those. So I, so I personalize the story the metaphor based on your clinical presentation, that's why it's critical for us to do thorough interviews, thorough physical exams before we do this. You know, a lot of people think all I do is I just sit and talk to people about pain. 90% of my patients cry after the physical exam. And when I sit with them and I ask them what's wrong, I know what it is. They say, that's the most thorough medical exam I've had in 10 years. And they, they, they trust you. One of my colleagues, Corey Zimney, who's one of the, really smart, he's one of my PhD students, um, have figured out this thing that we do, pain neuroscience comes down to one word trust, if they trust you. So how do you build trust? You listen to the person. You treat them with respect, with dignity. You make time for them. Tell me your story. You know, when they say, do you want the short version? You say, no, no, tell me the long version. I want to get to know you. I know it sounds, the clinicians listening are going to say, oh, this guy is nuts. It works. It works so well. Because if you don't show you care, then it's not going to work. But that's how we make it personal. Absolutely. How do you explain the difference between acute and chronic pain? We cannot. The International Association, the study of pain, actually is strongly considering changing acute, subacute, and chronic to adaptive and maladaptive. For too long have we said, well, it's tight of time, right? In some countries, if you have pain for three months and it turns into three months and a day, you suddenly have chronic pain. Other, day, other countries, it's six months. The problem is, for instance, skin heals very quickly. For skin, chronic will be, if you cut yourself today and it's not healed in a week, that's chronic for skin. A disc we know heals in nine months or to a year. So that's a little hard. Also, you and I need to understand today that 30% of people with pain never had an injury. So how can we tie it to, to time? So the IASP is talking about adaptive and maladaptive pain. So adaptive pain is a pain that serves a primary purpose. You know, I step in an L, lift my foot up, go to the ER, get some help. Maladaptive pain serves a secondary purpose. Now, it's very hard right now for us to classify that. I don't like the time idea because I think, again, if somebody comes and says, I never had an injury, I just hurt, it, it makes it tricky because there's never been a tissue to tie this to. I don't have an answer for you, I'm sorry. Um, the pain colleagues I work with, all, we're all struggling with this idea right now. What is acute, what is subacute, what is chronic? Time could be one factor, but could be other things too. So if someone came to you and they did have this pain, but they had no injury, what would you call that pain? Pain. Pain, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, we'll still tie it to chronicity, right? So if somebody comes and asks him, you know, what brings you to my clinic? Well, I hurt. How did it happen? I have no idea. 
tell me about it. I woke up three days ago and here it is. We would probably still call that acute just because it's been three days. But if a patient says, you know, I've had it so 20 years, I never had an injury. And the bottom line is it doesn't really matter. We'll still treat the person in front of us, but um, it doesn't bother me that much. And in your explanation of pain, you discuss the psychosocial and lifestyle factors. How do they influence people's pain? Ooh, absolutely. Every person's pain is different, right? And so if we want to be technical today, we now know that the pain neuro matrix tells us in a, every human being that we scan, and we, we put them in an fMRI, there are nine common areas that always light up. We know it's the anterior cingulate, it's the premotor cortex, it's all these areas light up. But wait a minute, I just told you everybody's pain is different. On the one end, I'm saying everybody's the same, whatever. So what we now know is, if I punch you in the arm right now, there will be nine areas that light up that deals with this nociception I just gave you. But that map will then actually communicate with everything that makes you, you. Your past experiences, how mom and dad raised you. How's the job going? How's the love life going? How is your football team doing? That is how it becomes personal. So that's why these outside factors, which we often refer to as yellow flags, drive a pain experience better or worse, right? So the big ones we now know is failed treatments, different explanations of pain, fear, work, social life. Those are the five big ones. And so they powerfully will then drive the system either up or down, which obviously makes it very individualized. Along the lines of the different explanations of pain, if you're working with a patient who's very invested in the belief that it's a structural pathology mm -hmm. or a very biomechanical source of their pain, how do you address that? I think it's, it's healthy for all of us to understand you're not going to help everybody, right? If you go back to the numbers needed to treat, it's one in three, which means two out of three is going to walk out of there, flip you off, tell you something about your ancestry, and tell you to get out of my life, right? I, I, I need us to be realistic. I hope your viewers, your listeners will understand. People walk out of our clinic upset at me, call the board against me. I talked with David for a long time, with Lorimer, I have the utmost respect. Same thing happens to them. Nobody needs to look at us and say, oh, these guys are perfect. Absolutely not. This is what makes pain so hard. So we need to understand that concept. So first of all, if I walk in a clinic, I know I'm going to give people everything I got. There will be a few that rejected for multiple reasons. One of the hot areas in our research right now is Prochaska's model of behavior change. When people come in in pre-contemplation, contemplation, we have to catch them at the right time. Pre-contemplators are walking in, I don't even want to be there. I'm only here to keep my doctor happy. I'm only here to keep my wife off my back. They would be very hard to shift. We have research to show that if we work with them and a month later they haven't shifted any, there's a 3% chance that they will be better in six months. So it's way more complicated than that. But as far as the biomedical model goes, I think it's, it's simple. I love it when they come in and I just, all I would do, I just ask them questions, ask them questions. We tend to tell, did you know 50% of people have a bulging disc walking out in downtown Toronto? That's okay. And a patient said, well, that's not me. Who, who? So we ask questions, you know, how do you know you have a bulging disc? And they'll give you, well, I had an MRI. Then we ask another question. When was the MRI done? Why is this important? Well, we know that there are studies if we scan you today, scan you two months later, 50% are gone. You know, did you have it laying on your back or did you stand upright? Um, did you have it in the morning or the evening? So we just slowly chisel, chisel little pieces until the patient turns to say, so this isn't that big of a deal. Exactly. Come on, let's get moving, right? If a patient's still stuck on this, then we bring in the big guns. So I tell the young therapist, always find a guy like me, you know, little belly, hair is gone, very gray. Maybe they trust me more than you because they look, they'll say things like, I've had pain longer than you've been alive. How, how dare you, right? If that doesn't work, I call the doctor. Hey, doc, how's it going? 
thank you for sending me patience. If I can help you any day, but listen, I need a favor. You know, um, Susie is coming back to, to, to your office on Friday for a, another appointment. Can you help me? What's the problem? And explain them to them. I will just tell you, I'm, I'm probably not as cynical as a lot of therapists, but I have more physicians helping me than they're the problem. You know, in the late 90s, every doctor told a patient, you have a bulging disc, biggest one I've ever seen. You need surgery yesterday, right? I have more surgeons now telling patients, you got a bulging disc, so do I, don't worry about it. And it's so cool. So now the patient goes and sees a surgeon and he says, hey, listen, I looked at your scans again. It's fine. You know, I told you last time bulging this. I looked at it. It's not that big of a deal. So we chisel where we can. We chisel and also make peace with the fact that there'll be one in ten. It's, they've already framed their MRI above the fireplace. They've got a tattoo of it on their left scapula. It's a screensaver on their iPhone. They will never, you're not going to change them. And make peace with it. It happens to all of us. If a patient has seen another healthcare professional that's given them a different explanation of their pain, how do you educate them without undermining other healthcare professionals? <laughs> I, I think it's a great question. Number one is there is never a place to undermine anybody else. It, nobody wins, right? For me to badmouth any other healthcare provider. So there's a lot of different ways. First of all, you know, you'd ask a patient, you know, what's going on? They explain to you. Um, and you can again try and explain that. Listen, this is one opinion. Let me explain to you another way. I do believe what's so cool about pain neuroscience education is we blend it with compassion and empathy. I really want to help you. I'm not here to sell anything. I always tell patients the day you walk in here and say, I, I think I don't need you anymore. We're going to have the biggest party in town because I have no incentive to keep you here. Typically, the other providers that tend to scare people with these bad things want to keep them. Oh, I need to see you three times a week for many years. So there's this, there's this very refreshing, I want you out of here. I don't want you here. I, we can be friends, but not in my clinic. Let's get on with our life, right? So they see that real quick. If I find I have a problem with, a, with a, another healthcare provider, then I have a healthcare provider problem. So then I go talk to the person. In our town, we, we, you know, we have chiropractors, we have other physios, whatever. And I would have no problem walking up to and say, hey, listen, How's it going? Can, can we have a little discussion? I've talked to physicians about it, whatever. I, I really don't think people wake up in the morning to say, I'm going to really get somebody, you know, sorry for the words, but I'm going to screw people over today. And every orthopedic surgeon that I've gone to and said, hey, doc, you're scaring the life out of patients. 99% have turned to me and said, thank you. I think you're the first person that's ever told me that, but thank you. Does everybody else know about it? They're really relieved that somebody actually be, f so, so I tend to be more proactive. If those people don't behave themselves, then I can turn to the patients and listen, just give me some time. I know you tend to go to that person. Can you give me just a couple of weeks? Let us just work on a few things. If the patient doesn't want to do that, then it's the patient's choice to say, listen, it's me or that person. But there is no reason to undermine anybody unless there's something unethical. That's where all of us have to draw the line, right? And so, and we've had those. And, um, you know, it's kind of the old thing from Jeff Maitland, do right by the patient and they'll know. You know, if you do a good job, they're going to say, hey, this girl really cares about me. Um, I'm going to see this girl for a while and not that guy, whatever. So um, and maybe I'm not answering your question, but uh, there's no place to, to, to undermine anybody else, to badmouth anybody else. Educate as much as you can and just show them you care. And, and unless it's something, like I said, unethical, but it, mm -hmm. it's not right. Okay. And depending on where you practice, there's limited time during treatment sessions. Yep. So do you have any strategies for a therapist to incorporate this education into that kind yeah. of setting? So, and that's exactly what our research has been about. In the old days, like I said, we gave people this fire hose approach. We have now broken the stories, the metaphors down between five and 10 minute stories. 
And also what we do is we have found they're good if I sit with you and explain something to you, but it's, also, it's even better if I do it while we're in the gym doing some exercise. So you can combine it quite easily. We talk to patients all the time. Hey, how about last night's football game? Hey, oh, it's gonna be cold tomorrow. Why don't we spend half that time at least? Say, hey, Frank, listen, get on the treadmill. Let's get your knee warmed up a little bit. But as we're doing this, let me tell you a little story, right? And so we can combine it with the other physical treatments. I also believe we have to give people more stuff to do at home. I do believe as the world struggles with financial resources for healthcare especially, the future of healthcare is to help people help themselves. So I will sit to the patient, you're in my clinic, right? And I just told you the alarm system story, we had a great session in the clinic, I worked in your back or whatever, I say, hey, listen, that was a great session. From today till your next visit, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit for tonight, go home, shut the TV off, get something cold to drink, preferably a nice crisp Chardonnay from South Africa. And I want you to think, if a lion jumped in a room right now, what would you do? Don't, don't tell me. Take a piece of paper, and I usually give him a piece of paper with a little lion already drawn on it, and say, I want you to write down everything you would do if a lion jumped in this room tonight, all right? Have a great day, I'll see you Friday. Now they've got work to do. So they come preempted, they walk in Friday with this, here's a piece of paper. They don't know what, okay, now let's talk about it. So you've almost already done a piece of it. Um, so we use a lot of this homework stuff to go think about it. I tell patients things, I go home tonight and come back with, write down for me three to five things that's good about pain. Have a great day. If they come back and they don't bring it back, we have an adult conversation about, I can only meet you halfway. It's your pain, not mine. So we, are, we keep our patients very compliant with our programs. If you don't follow through, we cannot help you. But we do a lot of it at home, short stories, while we do other stuff. Um, you know, I worked in a private practice in Kansas City in, in the United States. I would see 24 patients a day in a very busy practice doing this stuff. This is what I was hired for. And um, it can be done. There's no doubt about it. Yep. And within the biopsychosocial model, it seems like the pendulum has swung a lot towards the psychosocial mm -hmm. aspects of pain. So how important is that bio aspect in chronic pain? If there's no bio, why are there physios? Every brain has a body. You know, for a long time we said every body has a brain, meaning don't forget there's a brain attached, but we have to also go backwards and remember the, the brain is a body. And so, you know, I grew up as a manual therapist and I think there's, there's this horrible discussion right now, pain, is, pain science is hands-on or hands-off. We recently wrote a really cool paper with, with my, my colleague Louis Puntadura and Joe Nice, and we showed the idea that they, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. If you teach people about pain and their pain goes down, their catastrophization, their fear avoidance goes down, you may actually calm the nervous system enough to allow you to put your hands on them. You know, we now know if we pump blood and oxygen around nerves, they calm down. And so I always tell people this, I still do the same manual therapy I always did, but the way I explain it is different. Also, all the work we've done now with sensory integration and, and greater motor imagery, all our manual techniques now are active. The day should be gone where we take somebody, put him on a plinth and say, put, shove your face in that hole, I want to talk to you for an hour, and I want to work on you. No. So we will work on somebody's back and we'll do manual techniques. This is on the left side of your spine. This is the right side. Which side am I on? Well, they have to use their brain and their skin to say that was left or right. What are they doing? Discrimination. This is L5. This is L1. Which one am I on? And we have done, we have research, your, your viewers can go look at it, we publish some really cool research to show when people have to discriminate, their pain plummets. We sat with patients for five minutes, all we did is we just touched them on the back. Where am I touching you? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Five minutes, just where am I touching you? Where am I touching you? And the pain dropped two points on a 10 point scale in five minutes. Now imagine we send him home and the partner sits at night, where am I touching you? Where am I touching you? We did it for knees, we did it for shoulders. 
And that's still manual. Now we can use pens, we can use erasers, we can use our thumbs, our hands. But I look at manual therapy as blood flow, oxygen, patients want it. It has an enormous effect on the periaqueductal gray area to release endorphins. There's um, human touch, oxytocin. There's so much neuroscience behind why we should touch people. So when I hear about a physio that sells a plinth and gets a round table with two chairs, I, I cry because what if we did both really good? But the manual side, I will say, needs a major update. We don't fix things, nothing's broken, nothing went out of place. We just need to think about it as movement, sensory discrimination, human touch in a safe clinical environment, and we explain to you how pain works. So, so I, I'm sure the pure neuroscientists will have a go at me, but I was pretty pleased Joe Nice was okay with it because he was kind of on the other side, and I think we're in for a big revolution for the manual therapy side. So if I was your patient, yep. how would you explain why you were doing the manual therapy? On so we did this. We did an experiment. So my residents, we, we gave them an, a research project and we randomized patients into two groups. One group, we'd show them a picture of a, of a spine, a low back, and we would tell them a simple mechanical story. Listen, your back has five bones, five vertebrae, right? When life is good, theoretically, they all move their own little piece so we have good general movement. It's a shared load model. You stand on left leg, right leg, life is good. When there's muscle guarding and spasm and you hurt and you move different, your mechanics are off. It's like you lean more on your left leg or your right leg, right? Those kind of things. So we're gonna now have you lay on the table and we're gonna do these nice oscillating manual techniques to your back to get your mechanics straightened out. And people are like, okay, fine. This is the old Maitland model, right? Hyper, hypo, hyper, hypo, etc. Another group of patients came in and we showed them the homunculus the primary somatosensory cortex, we said, listen, there's a map in your brain right here that basically represents your body. So this is a hand, this is a foot, etc. Here's what you need to know today. When life is good, the map is sharp, very crisp. So if I show you a hand, you'll tell me that's a hand, not a foot. You'll tell me it's right, it's not left. What we now know, when we don't move much, when we're painful, we hurt, whatever, the map becomes a little blurred, a little smudged, if you will. It's still there, but we struggle with it. And guess what? The more we struggle to identify the body part, the more pain is produced to protect you. So we're gonna do a technique with you today. We're gonna to lay you on the table, and we're gonna just get on your spine and do these nice little oscillating techniques. And what it really does, it sharpens the map again for us. Is that fair enough? And patient's like, okay, fine. So we would get on the spine and we'd say, this is L5, this is L4, etc. And then we measured afterwards, forward flexion, straight leg raise and pain. And lo and behold, the neuroplasticity explanation did way better than the other one. And that was, I mean, it was fun based on all the other stuff we did, but I have no problem explaining to patients that the neuroplasticity, the homunculus story, I think is very on the edge. But I think for a normal clinician to tell a patient, listen, your back hurts, I'm gonna do some nice oscillating techniques, get some blood flow there, oxygen. You know, we always tell patients, great new research out of Tokyo, Sydney, London, and Iowa. have told us when we do these nice oscillating techniques, blood comes to the area, circulation, and guess what? Nerves calm when there's blood into them. So we almost talk them through processes, but we don't say L5 is stiff, it's the stiffest L5 I've ever found. I'm the only unstiffer in the state of Iowa, and I will unstiff that for you today at a special price. I mean, that's nonsense. We've done this for years and I'm so sick of it because we don't unstiff things. We put our hands on them, we move oxygen circulation. I, I think that's where manual research should be going a little bit more so. Or maybe I'm just totally full of nonsense. Are there any specific words that you feel should never be used when educating someone about their pain? <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's well documented. Where does it harm and where does it heal? I mean, we know in the medical literature, torn, ripped, rupture, bulge, herniate, those things are bad, right? But you'll notice, I will actually sit to the patient and use the word bulging disc because I have to connect with them. If you call it a bulging disc, I feel it's important for you to also call it a bulging disc, even though I, it, I cringe when I say it, right? But if I don't, then I'm telling you, I don't hear you. I don't listen. Maiden always talks about the idea of you need to make sure the patient understands what you, you hear. So, but there are words, torn, rip, rupture, bulge, herniate. You know, I always tell therapists, go Monday in a clinic and take a lady with fibromyalgia and tell her this beautiful quote, pain is weakness leaving the body. And see if you're alive at the end of the day. She'll stab you, right? Because, it, I mean, it makes it's no sense. For a high school kid that's an athlete, Pain is weakness, leaving the body, not a problem. So there's these mantras, no pain, no gain, right? Uh, we got to be a little careful there, but um, as far as never using it, it's a little trickier because I think you have to connect. Uh, we try to soften the words a little bit, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I cringe at instabilities. I cringe at spondylolisthesis, these horrible words we have, you know, but um, I would say we wouldn't use them. I'd prefer not to. But if a patient would, I would use them and then try and explain to them what it really means and then try and find a softer version throughout the therapy. What kind of treatment approaches do you find work best for patients with allodynia or strong central sensitization? I mean, the advances that we're getting in graded motor imagery, I think, is amazing. We have 32 research projects ongoing right now, and half of them are graded motor imagery. The, 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 the mirror therapies, the lateralities, we're doing some really cool virtual reality stuff right now. It's a way of moving without moving. It's a way of being touched but not being touched. Too hot to handle, basically, right? So those patients that walk in, say with a CRPS that is so sensitive, the minute you just get close to them, they start ramping up. But if you walk in and say, relax, we're not going to touch you, just relax. Who are you? You get to know them. You tell them how pain works. So, so we use pain neuroscience education, but then we use lots of other strategies to calm the system, restoring laterality in patients, uh, motor imagery, etc. I think that is really good for that patient population. Yeah. And how important do you think movement and exercise is in treatment? Movement is the biggest painkiller in the world. We now know a 10 kilometer or six mile run produces 10 milligrams of morphine. I mean, you break your arm today and go to the emergency room, you're going to get three or four milligrams of morphine max to set your arm in a cast. You go for a 10-kilometer run right now, you get 10 milligrams of morphine. Every runner is a drug addict, right? But it, movement is insanely important. It's, it's overwhelmingly powerful how, how movement actually attenuates pain. Uh, it's been shown extensively, absolutely. What research questions are you hoping that get answered in the future? Yeah, well, it's hard. I mean, there's a lot of things, you know. <laughs> For our team right now, I think the area that excites me probably the most is we're doing a lot of preemptive education. Um, we cannot prevent pain. I think pain prevention is a misnomer. Pain is normal. Without pain, we'd be dead, right? But we can prevent chronicity. We can prevent disability. So we have three different projects going, going right now. My favorite one, by the way, we're teaching pain science to middle school kids in, in America right now. So we went to fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade kids, taught them pain science, 30 minutes lecture about pain. Their knowledge of pain jumped almost higher than anybody we ever measured. And now we are tracking them throughout the school for attending school, going to the doctor, physical education classes, sports, etc. which I think, how cool is it when we can teach a young generation that when they heard, they go, I got it. The guy with a funny accent explained it. I'm going to be okay. And they keep running on with their friends which is ironic because mom and dad used to do that for us. You know, I suck it up, walk it off, right? So I'm very excited because we're building this program. As one, as one person said, we're, it's kind of like we're inoculating kids against chronicity. 
I wouldn't go that far. I think it's a little more trickier than that. But I love it. I love the idea that these little fifth grade kids are sitting there digging their nose, you know, sitting going, I got it. And as I always say, if they can get it, why can we not teach any person about pain? So, that, so that's the cool thing, the school program I'm excited about. We're still doing pre-operative stuff. We've done pre-op now for knee replacements. That paper is actually coming out very soon. We did a two-year follow-up study for knee replacements. Patients that got pain neuroscience education before surgery, drastically more successful in their outcomes. Um, we had pre-op for spine surgery. We tracked people three years out, did, did way better. Um, we're working on a pre-op for shoulders and hip replacements right now. So there's that whole preemptive stuff um, that we're doing right now. And we're also doing it, by the way, for acute low back pain. I think one of the misnomers is people think this stuff only works for chronic pain. So we're doing a study right now where people come into therapy with acute low back pain. We measure a ton of stuff on them, flexion, everything you can measure. The only thing they get, they get that same story I gave you, the sensitive alarm story in a, in a, in a beautiful story. And then we measure four criteria for success. If they meet them, they have a successful outcome. They bend further, they move further, their pain goes down, etc. And basically, in essence, developing a prediction rule. So if somebody walks in therapy with acute low back pain, but they meet these criteria and you do pain neuroscience with them, they actually do way better. And so it's, it's and, and sorry, but it's just a lot of people think it's just chronic. And we have great results. We're hoping next week actually we get our final patient in and then we are going to analyze the data. But so, so far, almost 50 of the 80 patients we have in the trial are successful. So it says, wait a minute, for people with acute pain, we teach them about pain science and they go, I'm much better. How cool is that? Now imagine we do that plus manual therapy, whatever else we're doing. So I, I like the idea of saying, let's try it in acute conditions too. Emergency rooms, those kind of things. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Sure. Our organization is International Spine and Pain Institute. ISPinstitute.com is our website. They can go there. Um, just where we do a lot of our courses, classes, seminars, those kind of things. Our instructors are there. We also have links to a lot of our research and stuff. So it's probably the easiest way to find us. Okay, thank you. Cool. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.